welcome to Clear as Quantum, an Equus podcast about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we'll try to dust the cobwebs out of quantum physics that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, and I work in New South Wales shining lasers at quantum diamonds. I'm Liz Bridge. I work in Queensland developing quantum sensors. I am Yasna Svenla. I'm raised in Brisbane, and I make superfluid Schrodinger cats. They all sound awesome. But before we get on to that, a brief description of Equus, which is a centre of excellence for engineered quantum systems, and it's funded by the Australian Research Council. In this podcast series, we'll interview a range of Equus researchers working in universities around Australia. Today, instead of interviewing a guest, we're going to share just a little bit of our own stories. Liz, tell me about quantum sensors. I work in the University of Queensland in the Quantum Optics Laboratory. And one of the things that we do is uh, developing quantum sensors. Specifically, I'm making magnetometers. So these magnetometers are for detecting magnetic fields. So if you imagine in, let's say, a mine system where you've got someone beneath, like a kilometre beneath the Earth, let's say, and you need to communicate with them, how are you going to do that? You can't run wires from the surface down to where they are. Um, and electromagnetic waves are very, they don't propagate through the Earth very well. So um, magnetic communication is a very easy way to communicate through the Earth. For that, we need magnetic transmitters and magnetic receivers. So one of our devices is going to be a magnetic receiver that can be placed at various places throughout a mining system. What does the quantum do that makes it better? Does that make it smaller or more sensitive or something else or many things? Uh, so we're using what's called quantum optomechanics that allows us to use optics, so that's photons and light and mechanical systems. So this is a little glass resonator. And we couple these together um, and the quantum nature of it allows us to get a higher sensitivity than you could for a, a classical system. A classical system, a classical magnetometer is kind of like a compass, although a compass only tells you the direction of the magnetic field. You need to know more than that, don't you? You want to know how strong the magnetic field is as well. There could be, there's a, there's a lot of different magnetometers that we can use, but quite a common one is a flux, flux gate magnetometer and they can detect the size of the magnetic field and they can detect the direction. Now, one thing that we can do that's slightly different from that is we can also look at different frequencies. So if the magnetic field is changing very quickly, um, we can detect that rather than just the, the sort of static magnetic field magnitude. And that can make it a lot more applicable for things like communication. Cool. I want to get a quantum magnetic sensor in my phone. <laughs> I think it might do one day. <laughs> There's some overlap there with my own work in what I called quantum diamonds. Quantum diamonds are basically diamonds that glow, and they glow because some of the atoms are the wrong kind of atoms. So imagine like raisin toast, where the, the bread is just diamond, but the raisins are, are defect atoms. They can give diamond color. So if you've ever seen pink diamonds or, or sometimes blue diamonds in gemstones or jewelry, those colors are coming about because of these single atom impurities in the in the crystal. But they, as well as giving diamond color, they can be a really useful resource for, for building quantum technologies because they let us talk to and listen to uh, individual electrons and single atoms. So in fact, sometimes these quantum diamonds, these glowing diamonds are used to measure magnetic fields uh, as well. But they can also be used for things like quantum computing, which is a pretty 
popular buzz phrase. And uh, even quantum communication, imagine kind of like an internet, but with, with quantum links rather than just normal phone line. Can I just tell you a little bit about some of the work that I did at Griffith University on quantum communication? Yeah. The Griffith University has various campuses. Um, the one I was at was in Nathan in Brisbane, and there's a Gold Coast campus as well. And so they've got an optical fibre network set up between the two campuses that are about 100 kilometres apart, maybe. Um, and they're trying to entangle a single iron with a single photon and then that send that photon down the optical fibre network to the other campus to measure the entanglement at the far end and use that as a quantum encrypted communication line. So that's pretty cool. That is very cool. That already touches on, uh, we, we introed the podcast as being a spooky podcast at a distance. And that's that's a reference to the spooky action at a distance, which is this idea of quantum entanglement or the, yeah, the ability to connect things together that are that are long distance apart that somehow uh-huh. are still connected. I think we'll have to come back in another episode this season to really look in depth at the idea of entanglement. But that's so cool. You said 100 kilometers. Yeah, I think the fiber line is about 100 kilometers long and the direct line of sight is maybe 50 kilometers between the two sites. And it's quite a long term goal for the project but it's what they're working towards so that'd be pretty exciting if australia can be one of the world first to demonstrate quantum communication at a distance like that yeah that's fantastic yasmin you mentioned superfluid schrodinger cats i actually kind of got roped into quantum physics um through a lecture that i saw that was that was about quantum superpositions and so what is called macroscopic schrodinger cats up until that point, I I quite liked quantum physics as in just the theoretical lectures that I've had, but it was not clear to me from those books that it was actually a real thing that you could in in any way make visible to the eye or even use as a tool outside of the regime of, you know, electrons and atoms, which are all kind of, I mean, they're real, but the, <laughs> they, they are real. <laughs> they are real, but they're not quite visible to the eye and they're not really part of you know any person's experience in in a real tangible way so i got really interested in that and i i tried to first i sort of made it my goal to partake in that race it's become a bit now of making as big an object to be in a quantum superposition as possible so we we haven't gotten to cats yet of course I think that's a good thing. We have we have come to a place where things larger than atoms and electrons can can be put in superposition states or so-called Schrodinger cat states after this thought ex- experiment by Schrodinger who said, "Oh, well, you know, a quantum superposition is quite something like having a cat that can be dead and alive at the same time." So, I started off in using a tiny mirror on a spring and that turned out to be quite difficult. It was a mirror because we use laser light to interact with those tiny objects. Um, but so yeah, that was that was not entirely successful. And then I came to Australia, and so here I've sort of been doing the same thing, but with fluids instead of uh, sort of solid objects. So that's actually what I've what I've been working on. What I'm working on currently is to look at these special types of fluids called superfluids, which have some properties that are actually quite 
valuable when you want to make quantum object out of it. For example, if you would fill a cup with superfluid helium, it would sort of just creep out because it has no viscosity. And anyway, I could, I could, <laughs> there's an, a lot of very nice videos on superfluid helium on the internet. It sounds so cool. I've been trying to think while you were talking about some clever joke to make about superfluids just being a marketing gimmick. The word super gets thrown around a lot, but actually I, I've not worked in it closely as a system, but I have had to measure diamonds immersed in superfluid helium uh, as a way to cool diamonds down. It's pretty cold, isn't it? Like just a few degrees above absolute zero? It's pretty cold. And that's actually where a major part of the experimental struggle is. It's all very easy, except that it has to be done at as close to the absolute zero as possible. So around minus 270 degrees Cal, um, Celsius. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so we have a very big fridge uh, that is, it's not something that you can buy in a Harvey Norman uh, that <laughs> needs multiple people to operate it. And uh, yeah, and so that superfluid healing that we use is around, yeah, five, five Kelvin and even lower, actually a few hundred millikelvin. Wow. That's so cool. One of the things that I find so fun about doing physics and science in this sort of quantum technology area is just the very cool toys. So I'm an experimentalist. So for me, it, it is a lot about the cool equipment, powerful lasers that are, ah, oh, I think one of the lasers in my lab is well over a thousand times more powerful than the, than the safe threshold for for your retina so it's well and truly <laughs> i don't capable. like that at yeah. all <laughs> <laughs> not not only that but it's in the infrared which means that it, you can't even see what has blinded you <laughs> uh -huh. yeah you know and um in my previous lab i'm not sure if i if i should tell this but you can just cut it out <laughs> i will not name any names and anyway but um in my previous lab someone wanted to prank the OHS inspector, which I think you can already tell is just a bad idea. From it the does sound like a bad idea from the start, yes. <laughs> so they had a, a few setups that involved lasers, and then there was a corridor next to it. And so what they did is they burned a hole in a piece of paper just with a, you know, with a lighter, and then they hung that piece of paper across the <laughs> across the corridor on the wall. <laughs> And then, so there was the wall with the piece of paper with the hole in it, then a corridor, and then there was this, this optical setup, and then they just set a non-plugged-in laser directed across the corridor towards the piece of paper, <laughs> and then they waited for the OHS inspector. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go down very well, I can't imagine. <laughs> I was interested, Jasmine, you, you talked about the excitement of realizing that some of this stuff that you could read about in books could actually sort of be done in the lab. My journey into quantum science was even slightly more accidental than that. I was an undergraduate student studying physics and I, I liked physics and I, and, you know, as an undergraduate student, at a, this is studying a, a bachelor's degree. You meet a range of physics. There's electricity, there's magnetism, there's some stuff called thermodynamics and obviously lots of forces and balls moving through the air and, and arrows being shot at monkeys who are falling out of trees, obviously as thought experiments. I went to a sort of a physics conference, or I applied to go to a, a physics conference, and I applied for a student sort of travel scholarship, and there was an, a field in the form that just said areas of interest. 
And I was completely stumped. I thought, I don't know. I can't just write physics. That looks a bit bland. So I just sat for a few minutes and thought, what have I heard of in physics that sounds really cool? Oh, quantum computing. The coolest thing came out of that because I got a, an email from a person who said, look, I'm not the person who decides whether you get the travel scholarship or not, but I'm on the committee that has that sees these forms. I noticed that you wrote quantum computing. That's kind of what I do in my lab. Do you want to come while you're at the conference and have a lab tour in my research lab? Nice. And I, I, I took him up on the invitation. It was just so exciting and um, completely captivated me. And I, I guess that that really pushed me towards this this field of quantum computing and more broadly quantum technologies. That's awesome. Did you, how did you get in, into sort of physics? Was it, you mentioned hypothetical shooting of monkeys out of trees. Was it, was it sort of the, just the, the little puzzles in high school sort of, did you just like the maths of it, the, the puzzles of those questions or was it, I don't know, was it something else? I really enjoyed maths and I guess enjoying it meant that I then put some effort into it, which meant that I was then competent and, you know, and did reasonably well. But it was growing from a position of uh, sort of genuinely enjoying playing with the ideas that you come across in mathematics. So physics was one of those things where, where maths kind of met the real world and suddenly you could pretty elegantly write out in a mathematical language some description of a thing that you could actually see you know drop a ball how how does its speed change as it's accelerating towards the ground or you know the the sort of standard physics experiments in motion where you you know you throw a ball through the sky or you kick a soccer ball and, and how does it move you know there's actually a lot of people that are that are pretty interested in physics without knowing it uh i i think a lot of soccer players or football players for example are real experts at predict in in their mind sort of programmed into their subconscious they're pretty good at computing the the equations of motion and and anticipating where a ball is going to go and and what as a physicist or as someone studying physics you sort of you're not necessarily good at kicking a ball into a goal although you might be but but what's fun is that you can get these tools that make sense of it so for me it my interest in it really came about from enjoying that connection to to the to experiments, I suppose, to observations, real life observations, things you could actually do. And that's probably why I've ended up being in, in science. You know, my own research is more measurement and experiment based. There, there are scientists that spend a lot more of their time thinking about theoretical ideas and it's super valuable. Um, but I just, I, I enjoy that, but I couldn't do only that because I want the fun toys. I think one thing that um, really still gets me about physics is, I mean, I've worked in it for 12 years or so, but it still amazes me when your your intuition of the way the world works and you, you turn this or this mechanical system does this and so that's going to happen next. And then that, that you can represent something in that form and think about it in your brain or you can think about it in terms of the mass and the equations. And the two things completely have the same answer at the end, but they're utterly different ways of representing and thinking about something. And it, it still fascinates me a little bit that, the equations do explain the real world in such a true sense. Mm. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it? How I think I, in any case, I have this thing where still after 10 years, I am still always just delighted and surprised when, <laughs> when, when a purely theoretical answer that I derived actually precisely matches my experience of the of the yeah. real world. <laughs> I yeah. always have to sort of tone it down a little bit. I'm like, 
be cool, yes, then this is how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I had a really vivid experience of that. I was doing an experiment where I was actually squeezing diamond. So in a in a, a thing with a sort of air compressed air piston that had a, a metal rod that squeezed a piece of diamond. And it sounds kind of crazy. Who squeezes diamonds? But the, what I was looking for was if you think of a sort of imaginary theoretical picture of of a crystal it's a bunch of atoms that are sitting together in some regular shape when you squeeze that crystal then the atoms move slightly closer together it, at least in your imagination you can sort of believe this from a theoretical point of view the atoms all move just slightly closer together along that direction because you're squeezing the the piece of crystal well what that does is it actually changes the the shape technically it changes the symmetry of the the thing that makes the glowing light come out of the diamond and you can see that by measuring a spectrum you, you measure the color of the light that comes out and it just works perfectly you get this this peak this sort of peak in the spectrum and it splits out into multiple peaks and that's literally because the atoms are moving slightly closer together i found that really exciting and i still find it kind of profound that it, it, it's not profound it's exactly what you'd expect but that that very simple cartoon thought experiment really literally does happen in the yeah. in this piece of diamond. Can I just ask, Lachlan, why diamonds? <laughs> <laughs> why take the most difficult to squeeze object that you could find? Yeah, exactly. The answer to that is that I was I was already looking at diamond. The the there are a couple of technical reasons for why these glowing diamonds are really interesting for for quantum building blocks in fact a lot of gemstones that have colors ruby amethyst a lot of these colorful gemstones are the color is coming about from the same kind of idea impurity atoms that have gotten into some crystal that might otherwise just be sort of clear and a bit boring so i was already looking at diamonds and there was some reasons why it was important to look at them but you're right really hard to squeeze and I had to squeeze them really, really hard. And I was putting, it was, a, it was an air piston and you, I was putting about twice as much air pressure as a car tire into this quite large piston, which then was pu pushing on a very tiny diamond, which gave it a huge amount of force. Uh, about a year after I used that apparatus, a, a fellow student in the same lab who was looking at a completely different solid system, a much softer crystal, he had a go. He said, oh, maybe I could squeeze it in that squeezing rod. And I said, yeah, it's just there on the wall. Why don't you give it a go? So they didn't even connect it up to a compressed air cylinder. They just gently blew with their mouth into the tube at the top. And that was already enough. It completely smashed their crystal to pieces. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess one of the other advantages of diamond, it is really hard and it's hard to squeeze. But what that means is you can apply a fair amount of pressure to it without it just smashing into a million pieces. Although I did break a bunch of diamonds. I joked to people at the time that that was why I had to stop my PhD research and, and finish writing my thesis because I'd broken all of my diamonds. Yeah. What did you use to apply the pressure? Like super diamond? What is the material that the... That the... <laughs> What's the piston made of? <laughs> yeah. That's right. I mean, the piston was made of, uh, of hardened high carbon steel. So high tensile steel. But that's way softer than diamond. So yeah, after each experiment run, there would be a little indentation where the diamond had been. Yeah, right. And I'd have to take it up to the mechanical guys and they would polish the metal surface back again. And 
it's just one of those areas where quantum science bumps up against sort of the extremes of material science. I was going to ask, how does your wife enjoy the fact that you work with diamonds at work? Yeah, she's very lucky because we got engaged before I'd started working with diamonds. And so I dutifully bought a, a, a ring with some diamonds on it uh, to propose. And that was great. Had it been a few years later, I might have been a little bit less emotionally connected to diamond as a material. It, it's still incredibly beautiful, but it's just a little bit less special in that sense to me now that I work with it all the time. My wife laughs a little bit. I've never bought her any other diamond jewelry since then, it, <laughs> until just very recently, because I discovered that you can buy uh, lab-grown pink diamonds. And the, the particular quantum thing in diamond that I look at, the glowing defect in diamond that that is the basis of a lot of quantum technologies, makes diamond have a sort of pink color. And I thought, I wonder if those diamonds are pink for this same reason. And so I I bought a set of earrings, uh, but I still haven't actually given them to my wife. I have technically, but they're not at home. They're at university. They're in my lab. They regularly have lasers shined at them. <laughs> and and it's true. They are pink because they have this particular quantum uh, defect in them. And, and so one day they'll come home from the lab and my wife will be able to wear them. But again, talking about pranking laser safety people, I wanted to get a, a particular photo. I don't have... Uh, any ear piercings myself. So I couldn't put these earrings in myself. So I got my wife to come into the university. I got her into the lab and put one of the earrings in her ear and then took a close-up photo of her um, of her ear with the laser beam shining on the diamond so that it would glow. But of course, ears are quite close to faces and eyes. And so it's actually very bad practice to point laser beams in that direction. Uh, I, I did turn the laser down to very safe levels and everything was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, you, you said you've been doing quantum stuff for 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Was it just automatic for you? Did What brought you into quantum science? Well, I guess if I go back to school, I, I mean, at school, I was like, what subjects do I enjoy? Which ones am I good at? And clearly sciences was my area that I excelled in. I was better. I was good at maths, but I didn't really enjoy it. And so unlike you, you enjoyed the math side of physics. Well, maths was just this thing that I had to do to pass the exams to get into a physics degree, which is the subject I wanted to study. And then I think I had this uh, this idea that I was going to like astrophysics and the stars and the galaxies were going to be this fascinating thing. And they are absolutely fascinating. But when it got to the lecture courses, it just didn't, it didn't strike me in quite the same way as some of the quantum aspects of physics do. And so my area I started in was a, is atomic and laser physics. And so I chose to do my PhD at the National Physical Laboratory in London. Um, where I built um, what's called a strontium optical lattice clock. So this is basically an atomic clock that should be able to measure the duration of a second about 100 times better than the current definition of the second. And so these atomic clocks are now so sensitive that they can detect um, general relativity. So if you change the height of your atomic clock, it would tick at a slightly different speed based on the gravitational field that it feels from the Earth. And so these atomic clocks now, again, they're laboratory-sized things, but if we can compact them down, we can use them as, as super, de- de- uh, super high-resolution like gravitational sensors. And there's speculation they could be used for, looking, for detecting deposits or, or um, like cavities under the Earth um, or 
yeah, there's various different things that groups are trying to use atomic clocks for. But it's that kind of atomic physics that got me into the research that I do. And then I think I was really interested in the application. And so I, I like things that I can say, this is this is the area that I work in, and I'm trying to make this thing that it has useful applications in this area. For me, it's the application side of physics that's much more interesting than the fundamental side. And to be on the cutting edge of research and making new technologies, I think it's really exciting. And at the moment, we're kind of developing devices that are relatively expensive and they're mostly one-off items but eventually there will be there'll be things that are, that are made in the thousands or millions and, and one day in the next 20 to 30 years we could be having these quantum systems within our smartphones and, mm. and really getting completely new technology that we just can't even dream up today. Did I remember correctly all three of us essentially got drawn into quantum science after we'd already basically started doing physics type stuff at university level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. If you're listening and if you're at school, uh, it probably suggests that if you're really interested in quantum technologies, it's pretty important to, to learn some physics. I think when I was at school, it didn't, I didn't think, oh, physics, I love physics. But I just knew that I, was, I really enjoyed the science and the logical thinking and the like the problem solving is my favorite part of physics. Here's this problem. You've got some tools to try and solve it, work out how to get to the the right answer. And not everyone gets there in the same way. I mean, even at work day to day, like I see that my brain works differently to other people's and we get to the same conclusion in a very different way to get there. But it's that aspect of problem solving that really, that I really enjoy. Well, no one here has mentioned that they want to be an astronaut, which I find quite suspicious. Oh, I did used to want to be an astronaut. When I was in year five at school, it was either a teacher or an astronaut. And then I realized there was other jobs as well. <laughs> but now you can be both. <laughs> well, given that this is a podcast, uh, I have one other interesting question. Podcasts are an audio medium. So all of you listening to this at the moment are hearing us and you're not seeing us and you're not reading what we're saying. So do any of you have a particular sound what does your quantum work sound like? I'll jump in. For me, because so much of my research happens in laboratories, uh, because it involves optics and counting very, very small amounts of light, it's usually in the dark. So I'm listening to the sounds around me, and there's usually the hum of a vacuum pump, for example, some some kinds of fridge that cools diamond down to very cold temperatures have a sort of a hissing type sound as the like a helium compressor. Yeah, helium compressors can be running. So there's there's usually a sort of a hum. And in fact, in my lab, every now and again over the over the years, um, I worked for a few years in Germany, and when I was there, every every half a year, we'd have to turn off all the power to every device in the lab while they did a electricity safety check. And it was eerie to walk into the lab when everything was turned off because it was so silent. And that made me realize just how just how noisy the, the background hum was. So for me, quantum physics sounds like... Mm. <laughs> it's that general background groaning that just gets into your brain. In the end, you can't hear it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I actually, during my... I worked as a master's student in Leiden for a while. And um, at one point, I was... Uh, semi alone in the lab at the at the weekend and it was actually all almost all of the physics experimental physics department had sort of one massive warehouse that was divided into booths 
so it, it would have been almost like probably about 40 people's experiments were, were in that in that warehouse and I was there with only one other person who was working on their own setup in the weekend it was the first time I was there in the weekend and so I was just looking at a way to turn the lights on and as you can imagine there were like a million switches in that, in that <laughs> place so I was already approaching them with caution but I mean I needed a light so in the end I figured that I would just flick the switch that looked most like a normal light switch and didn't have any warnings or, or no objects attached to it so I flicked that switch and at the as I flick it just the entire lab, which was humming and pulse tubes were boop, 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 and, and the cyclotron was running, flick, boof, dead silence. <laughs> so, so I yell out, screaming. I, yell, I, I run at the only other person who was in that warehouse, who was on the other side of it, and I just run to them screaming, I turned off the lab! <laughs> And he said, what? What is happening? And his cyclotron at that point is just, I mean, he's spinning out. And um, I, I repeat, I said, I turned off the lab. I turned off the lab. It was a switch. I didn't want to flick it, but I did it. And I turned off the lab. <laughs> and he said, stop. It's not possible to turn off the lab. And I said, well, clearly it is. <laughs> and so in the end, what that turned out to be, it was actually a full blackout. Oh. And it was a disaster, actually. Yeah, many they people just lost yeah months of their research. It was extremely bad. But it, but it but it wasn't connected to the switch. Is that what you're saying? It wasn't connected to the switch. Oh. <laughs> My switch was a light switch, after all. But it was um, it was it was probably one of the most stressful moments of my life. I thought my career had ended before it had even had a chance to begin. Oh no. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> That's a good story, Yasmin. Yeah, I'm going to choose for my sound just the dead silence that followed the flick of a switch during my <laughs> master's research on the Sunday in Leiden. When probably all you could hear then was your own heart beating through your ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was some screaming. So I don't know what my sound of quantum is. I'm very familiar with the same lab sounds that you've talked about, Yasmin and Lachlan. And there's a lot of lab noise in most labs. Um, I guess I was going to tie this in with, so one of the lasers that we work with in the atomic clocks, um, it's called the clock laser. So it's trying to probe this very, very narrow transition in the atoms in the atomic clock. So this laser needs to be super stable and it's got to be controlled to about 5 millikelvin temperatures. It's sensitive to any vibrations. So as well as put it on an optical isolation table and an active vibration isolation table, we also have what we call a quiet room that it would sit inside there because any vibrations from like the air conditioning system, so even just small drifts of air through the lab could cause vibrations onto this laser system that would, that would ultimately degrade the quality of the atomic clock. And so my, I guess, anti-sound of quantum is this quiet room where when you close the door and no one can hear you scream from the outside, so you really are isolated in this chamber at that point. <laughs> Well, uh, I hope that all of you listening can imagine some of those sounds of quantum. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing as we go into future episodes and, and interview some other uh, physics, quantum science researchers, hearing what their research sounds like. I'm particularly hanging out to hear what a theoretician describes as the sound of quantum science. 
I'm, I can think I can take a guess. I think it's muffled inside screaming. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or quiet, quiet sobbing at the corner of the whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have to check. But that's pretty much all we've got time for on this episode. So we hope that, that we can, in this podcast, we can make things as clear as quantum or perhaps even clearer. And if you have enjoyed listening to this and want to learn a little bit more about quantum science and some of the technologies that are emerging, explained by experts and students in the field, then subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts and maybe share it with your friends and family. And until next time, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>